Well, take your Bibles and open them to the table of contents. No, I'm not kidding. The table of contents. That might save some people some some heartburn in getting here fast. We're going to be studying a passage this morning. It's one of my favorite, most intriguing passages in all of the Bible, and I don't know that I've ever given it the attention, though I use it in hermeneutics classes and preaching classes. I've never preached it at Mission Road. In fact, I don't know that I've studied it like I have in the last week, and I think it has an appropriate application to the Christmas season, but you might not see it at first. Now, 12th book down is the book of 2 Kings. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. I have been a lover of this passage since the first time I read it and also very curious about it. I'll read it for you and then we'll do our best to walk through it and make some theological implications and applications. This is going to be different than we normally do. We're taking a break from our study of Ephesians where we do out, we outline the text according to the grammars we're going through. We're going to study the whole passage, then make some theological observations and conclusions and implications at the end, if that's okay. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Now, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? She said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing these jars, these vessels to her. And she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. He said to her, There's not one more vessel. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons 
can live on the rest. I titled this sermon, The Widow Who Struck Oil. And I think by the end, you'll see what I mean by that. This is an intriguing text. If you've read this before, and I know most of you have, you're kind of reading along, and doesn't this kind of come out of nowhere? What, why is this here, and what does this mean? And what in the world is Pastor Rick doing preaching on this the week before Christmas? Well, work with me for a second. If you paid much attention yesterday, and I won't go into the details, but the greatest comeback in NFL history actually happened. It was a team that was down 33 points at halftime and came back and won the game. It just made me think as watching that game unfold at the end and hearing the newscast about it and SportsCenter and uh, how, how competitive our world is. It just seems like everyone's in the competition, and I don't think competition is a bad thing, by the way. Paul referred to the Christian life as a race to be won. Paul referred to the Christian struggle of sin as a boxing match that needed to have victory. But there's another kind of competition that we've been introduced to and familiar with over the last decade or so, and that's from a show like Survivor. i got to admit, I've never seen a, a whole show of Survivor but I know enough about it to at least know what it's about. People are locked up on an island or a remote place as individuals, and their, their competition, are you ready for this, is a popularity contest among each other. It's who can be most popular to gain the most traction to win the game. Well, I know that sounds silly, but that's exactly what was happening in the time of the passage I just read. There was a competition of popularity for which God was real and which God cared and which God was to be worshipped. And the two options were the God of Israel, Yahweh, and Baal. Or I know some people say Baal. They're both correct. No one was there and knows how, how we said it then, but whichever you, you want to say, that's fine. But I grew up in Sunday school with my flannel graph saying Baal, so I'm going to say Baal. The books of 1 and 2 Kings are intriguing books. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, they're one book. 1 and 2 Kings is one book. The Bible presents it as one narrative. And it functions to provide justification for God's judgment of Israel. And God's judgment of Israel during this time that was spoken of, that Isaiah would, would uh, be a witness to, that Jeremiah would be a witness to, was because of the people's drifting toward idols and idolatry. In the middle of this cycle of sin, two men rise to the surface, two prophets of God, two heroes of Israel. You know their names, Elijah and his disciple, Elisha, Elijah and Elisha. And what a time God picked to bring these two men to the scene to the surface, to leadership. The nation was aggressively pursuing idolatrous Baal worship. Morality was at an all-time low. There was a drought. There was a famine. The people were confused and desperately seeking to know God and to know that he was real and that Baal was not. Not very unlike today, they were questioning whether God was really there, whether God was a God who cared, 
and whether God would ever save them. Questions that we still face. Now, in order to understand this text, you've got to rewind the tape all the way back to the time of Moses. Because Moses prophesied the word of God for the people and said, don't, don't be this, don't do this. This is what he said in Deuteronomy 6, 14. You shall not follow any other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you, the idols. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. There was a faithful remnant that was staying on track and packing with God, but most of the nation had drifted into idolatry. In fact, it's a cycle over and over and over where they would, they would be drawn to idols because they could see these wooden and stone carvings and they, they, they could put their faith in them because they could see and they were real. And they would realize that they weren't real and they would come back to the Lord and then they would come back to an idol because they couldn't see him. Endless cycle. One of the favorite gods and idols for the people to drift toward was the God of Canaan. That was the land that was promised to Abraham that they went to inherit after Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua. And the main God there was Baal, Baal. He was the God of ancient Canaan. He was the God of Phoenicia. And the worship of Baal penetrated the Jewish religious life all the way back into the time of Judges. Judges 3, 7 actually talks about Baal worship. It became widespread during Israel during the time of Ahab, which is when we find ourselves in 2 Kings here. Ahab and Jezebel. And that was the religion of the day. That was what people were drifting to. That's what people were wanting to worship. Now, I don't want to bore you too much, but if you dive into Baal, it's pretty interesting. According to the Canaanite legend, Baal was the son of the god El, the chief god, and Asherah, the goddess of the sea. Consequently, he became greater than both of them in Canaanite lore. He was considered the most powerful of all the, of all the gods, eclipsing his mother and father, seeing them as weak and ineffective because they couldn't do what he could do. What could he do? They saw that Baal would give fertility and control the weather which would control the food because then they would have harvest. They worshiped him as a fertility god who provided food and children. And this is what's interesting and crazy about that. Baal, who is a male god, was represented as a female cow, one who is fertile. Don't ask me to explain that. We learn from Jeremiah that appeasing Baal got so serious and so horrific. According to Jeremiah 19.5, it involved human sacrifice of firstborn sons. Jeremiah 19.5, they have built high places of Baal to burn worship, excuse me, to burn their sons in fire as burnt offerings to Baal. And God says, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever even enter my mind. In the most famous scene of the conflict between Baal and Yahweh, the God of Israel, or the worship of Baal and the worship of the true God of Israel, it happened on Mount Carmel. Now, those of us who are going to Israel in just a few weeks, we will go to this exact site. 
It'll be fascinating for you. You remember what happened probably from the flannel graphs when you were kids? Very intriguing story. There's, this, uh, there's a drought going on in the land, and they, they wanted, and which consequently a famine, and they, they, uh, they were attributing it to um, different things. And so Elijah challenges Baal and says, well, my God can solve this and yours can't. By the way, if you ever want to read spiritual smack and talk, read Elijah talking to the sons of uh, the prophets of Baal. It's, it's interesting. They set up this altar, and here's the contest. Whoever can burn the sacrifice on the altar is truly God. And so Elijah, in a yawning fashion, says, have at it. And all day they're trying to pray to Baal to come and bring fire on this altar and burn it up. You remember the story? And nothing happens. And Elijah starts saying, ah, oh, maybe, maybe Baal is asleep. Then later he says, maybe he's in the bathroom. And then finally, at the end, they give up. They're cutting themselves. They're, they're in crazy adulations of worship to try to manipulate Baal to do something. And they can't make this thing burn up. So it's hard not to preach this passage right now. But so Elijah then says, okay, tell you what, come and put water on the altar. Drench it. Put a moat around it. Make sure it's just soaked in water. Then he prays, and what happens? God sends lightning. It burns it up instantly. God won. But that sets up a constant conflict, not on just Mount Carmel, but all over Israel. Who's real and who's more powerful? God of Israel or Baal? Well, during, as I said, the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, the worship of Baal in Israel reached its highest point. Elijah, what a hero, which is interesting. He kills 300 prophets of Baal and then runs from the queen, Jezebel. But the narrative that begins in 1 Kings 17 shows that God is not controlled by Baal. God controls the rain. God controls the weather. God controls the, the droughts. God controls the famine. For three and a half years, there had been this drought, and God ends it through Elijah's prayers. All along, 450 prophets of Baal called on their God to send fire, and it didn't happen. Incredible. Here's what I want you to know, though. When you read beginning of 1 Kings 17 through the end of 1 Kings and 2 Kings 1, Elijah was a very interesting figure in that most of his ministry was very public. It had very big stages. Massive people watched. He had a disciple named Elisha who would be quite different. Let me also introduce you to this. These two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, are unique in that most, most of what we know about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the major prophets, the minor prophets, most of what we know about them is from what they said. We know very little about what they did. It's quite the opposite with Elijah and Elisha. We know a lot about what they did and very little about their sermons or what they said. So to understand what this passage is about the widow and the oil, 
you have to understand that this is right in the midst of the conflict and the contest of popularity between the God of Israel and Baal. They needed proof that God was real, and God gave it to them in a macro way, and God gave it to them in a micro-personal way. The macro way was through Elijah. The micro way was through Elisha. Now, the series of small-time, small-town miracles with Elisha begins in 2 Kings 4 here in our passage and goes through chapter 6, verse 23. Each of these stories further Elisha's influence, extends the knowledge that the Lord is real. He rules over the nations, every area of life. But most of these stories we wouldn't know about unless someone had told us because they weren't they weren't big miracles. And that's important. And we'll come back to help us in a moment. Let's dive into this narrative and look at it very closely, can we? Now, verse 1. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha. Now, there's some debate whether this is an actual man training for the prophethood, which I think probably was. They were, they were succession-oriented or whether it was just a son, but I think probably someone who had been training, someone who was godly, because we learned something about his character in just a moment. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elijah. I love the fact that she sought pastoral wisdom and pastoral counsel. I need wisdom, and I'm going to the man of God to get it. This is what she says. Your servant, my husband, is dead. We don't know if that's the first time Elisha had known this or whether she was just creating the context for her next statement. But it's a statement of grief. My husband's dead. He was also your servant, which means he was probably training for being a prophet, your servant. And you know that this servant, your servant, I love this, feared the Lord. This is a godly man. Remember, this is a time of famine and a time of drought. Resources were scarce. In our vernacular, he ran up his credit card, probably feeding his family. No other way to, to feed. So he would indebt himself to creditors to give the necessities of life. He wasn't buying new houses and cars and clothes. But something happens that's horrific. This tells you the, the, the time, how bad it was. You're serving fear. And the creditor has come to take away my two children to be his slaves. We'll find out in a minute that the two children are boys, they're sons. We'll also find out that they're old enough to be slaves, which means they were not toddlers or young men. These were teenagers or higher. So the context is sad. They, the husband had debt. He dies, and instead of getting compassion, this widow gets a bill. And the bill is, pay up or we'll take your sons to be our slaves. Awful. Verse 2, Elisha said to her, what? What shall I do to you? Or literally, what, what can I do? Or what, what are you expecting? 
Jewish tradition tells us that this woman was the wife of Obadiah, Ahab's servant. We don't know that for sure, but 1 Kings 18 indicates it could be. Elisha, the successor of the prophet Elijah, is now taking the place of spiritual leadership, and she goes to the man she knows to be the leader and has this conversation with him. This early death ripping her husband from her. Now she's a widow and there are orphans. The walls of her house must have been naked. The shelves empty, the wooden table bare, the house filled with grief, depression from the death of dad or her dear husband. And there was no insurance system, no welfare. And these creditors come. And the distress of this unhappy mother with these frightened, orphaned young men with the threat of incredible magnitude. Elisha comes at her request, at her seeking. He says, what can I do for you? Then he says, what do you have in the house? Let's do some inventory. I mean, are you really destitute? Is there anything we can work with here? Are there loaves to multiply or fish to divide? What's in the house? And she said, nothing. Except a suk. It's the Hebrew word for a ladle. It says, translated here, except a jar of oil, probably probably a dipping jar or more like a handle with a dipping ladle that you would take bigger kali vessels, bigger vessels that were probably anywhere from two to four feet and about 18 inches or more wide, and they they were jars, they were giant jars that you would store grain, oil. Most of them were as grain repositories, not as oil repositories. Remember that. What do you have? Well, I got a. And there's a lot of debate. Does she have a little bit, of, a little jar with a little oil in it, or does she have a little oil jar with nothing in it? Can I tell you in a minute? It doesn't matter. There's going to be a lot of oil generated either from nothing or from a little. So I don't think it matters. What do you have? I got nothing except this little sook, this little ladle, this little dipping jar of oil or for oil. <laughs> and then comes verse 3, which may, imagine reading this for the first time. It makes no sense. So she went out, excuse me, verse 3. So he said to her, go borrow big jars, kali, vessels, three to four feet, 18 or so inches wide, big jars, clay jars, go borrow Kali, vessels at large for yourself. I love this, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels. He's not saying go ask what kind of flour they have left over, what kind of oil they have left over. Make sure they're empty. And then this phrase... (laughs) Do not get a few. That's important. Because she could have gone 
So the neighbors each side and said, can I borrow one? Can I borrow one? Came in with two and said, okay, what do you want me to do now, man of God? Don't get a few. Get as many as possible. We'll find out in a minute that she got as many as possible. And after this miracle starts, more keep coming. The neighbors keep saying, well, she needs some empty vessels, so here's some empty jars. Don't get a few. Then here's the prophetic prediction in verse 4. And you shall go in, (laughs) shut the door behind you and your sons. It's going to be a private miracle. And pour. Stop right there. Pour. Pour what? Oh, it gets more. Pour out into all these big jars, these big vases. And you shall set aside what is full. I mean, if all she, let's just say that there's oil in the jar, oil in the ladle. And you got all these three foot tall vessels that usually held grain. Not, not, they weren't usually typically used for a lot of olive oil unless you were a merchant. So he says, pour into all of them. The most fascinating part of the whole passage is verse 5. So she went from him and obeyed. She shut the door behind her and her sons. And we know she had borrowed some because she started this miracle, but watch what happens then. And they were bringing more vessels to her, and she poured. So this is an ongoing kind of miracle. So some people probably knew what was happening in there. This is, a, this is an interesting circumstance that's developing. She's in the room with her sons, and she gets the little jar, the little ladle, and she poured. Now just do some physics with me you got let's just say you got a baby baby food jar of olive oil let's just say there's oil there and you got all these big jars around you three foot tall and you pour and it fills up so you go to the next one and it fills up and neighbors are bringing more And they're filling up. Footnote. Why is that important? Olive oil was like the currency. It was the money of the day. It was used for cooking. It was used for baking. It was used for medicine. It was used to light the lamps that they they, uh, used for uh, with a little wick at night. In fact, those of us who are going to Israel, you'll see these. You can purchase these little lamps. So if you had olive oil, that's what was used as currency, as money to trade with. So if you have a lot of olive oil, you have a lot of money, a lot of wealth. So she shuts the door, she begins to pour. And then verse 6, there's just so much between verse 5 and 6. And we don't get to see it. Won't this be a fun conversation in heaven to find this woman and say, we got to talk. She poured. And it came about when all the vessels were full that she said to her son, and the Hebrew is more emphatic than it says here in the, in the English. It says, bring me another vessel. It's more like, bring me a vessel fast. 
the water pressure, what oil pressure coming out of that thing must have been extreme because she's saying, another one, another one, another one, bring him another one. And she says, please, please. And the son says, they're all full. <laughs> and the oil stopped right then. The mother's panicked plea is settled by God shutting off the tap of olive oil. That precision of God is noteworthy. So what's the point of the story? Well, it's really in verse 7. She came and told the man of God, Elisha wasn't here for this miracle. Go watch it yourself. She came and said, you're not going to believe what happened. I think Elisha probably said, actually, I am going to believe what happened. Told you what happened. So what does she do? I mean, what do you do with all this wealth? He says, here, I'll tell you what, here's the plan. Go sell the oil and pay your debt. Be responsible first. And then you and your sons can live on the rest. Does that tell you how much oil was poured that day? She basically hit the lottery. Indescribable wealth. She became wealthy in an instant. He says, pay your debt. Keep your sons. I don't think she was so happy to be out of debt as to be with the winning of her sons. And then live on the rest. She got enough to live on now. That's important because she would have had no way to make money. She would have been a, 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 a servant to the people around her to be helped until her sons could be wealthy enough to, or be uh, able enough to provide income. God saves the day. A couple of things we need to think about, though. A theological footnote is necessary here. God's grace may see different solutions than we do or than we are seeking. She didn't know this was going to happen. She just obeyed. Sometimes God doesn't send the rescue that we ask for or that we want. The church is full of a history, church history is full of martyrs, people who die for the Lord, but they have their reward. God didn't let them down, He brought them home. God's people do not always experience this kind of happy ending as, that this woman did, but they will experience a resolution that will bring about their good and time and God's glory in eternity. Great care has to be taken with this passage, both theologically and in application. God is great, powerful, especially for widows and orphans. He meets needs. He performs miracles. However, sometimes He does choose to let the righteous suffer and the wicked do experience a temporary victory. No prescriptions in this passage, no promises in this passage, but there are snapshots of God in this passage. So what I want to do is kind of step back and grab some theology from this. And I think you'll see all of these theological observations can be attached to Jesus. Because here's what I want you to hear. Very important. 
the God who did this for this woman is not just the God who sent Jesus Christ. This is the God who is Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few takeaways. We have a God who supplies proportionate to faith and obedience. It's all over the scriptures. What God commands doesn't always make sense. This certainly didn't make any sense to her. Fighting your, your lusts, fighting uh, to be honest, fighting the lies that come up in our heart, that's not always easy. It doesn't always make sense. But God rewards obedience and faith. Doesn't that sound like the Lord Jesus? John 20, verse 29 Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believe. He still rewards those who believe and respond in faith. Secondly, we have a God who is clearly concerned with the seemingly insignificant. Oh, this is so precious. We have a God who is concerned with the seemingly insignificant because no one's insignificant to God. This was a woman of no consequence. Elijah, massive miracles. Elisha shows us that God cares about people we don't even know about who are not significant, who are not winning awards. But he knows, he sees, he understands, he cares. Like the woman at the well in John 4, we're told key facts about that woman. Jesus talks to her. Um, her name is never revealed, but she was a female from Samaria, which a Jewish teacher would not usually speak to, a race with whom Jesus did not associate the Samaritans. We know she had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband, and he cared about her. He cared about her. Same God. Number three, we have a God who cares as much for the individual as he does the nation. Elijah, all about the nation. Elisha, about widows and orphans and seminary students in chapter 6 who borrow an axe head to build one of their dormitories. The axe head flies off. This is 2 Kings 6. It goes to the bottom. Elisha comes, sticks a stick in the water. The axe head made of iron, floats to the top. You say, what is that about? God is real. And he cares about this, this poor guy who didn't have enough to buy an axe, much less to repay an axe he had borrowed. God knows and he cares about the seemingly insignificant. And he cares about the individuals as much as the big stuff, the nations. So does Jesus. We have a God who looks with special attention on widows in need, and so should the church. Remember the half-brother of Jesus in uh, James 1.27 said, pure and undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans. Nowhere do we see that more in Jesus' life than, than at the cross where he's dying, and he looks down at John and says, take care of mom. Take care of my mom. Number five, we have a God who has absolute control over nature and nations. He controlled the generation of this olive oil, which, by the way, I talked to a, 
a friend of mine who's a chemist, a scientist, several years ago, and he was talking to me about the, how Jesus turned the water into wine, which was more significant than you think because it turned, some of you will understand this better than me, he turned a substance that was inert to a su- substance that was life. What does that mean? There's carbon bonds in the wine that weren't in water. So making water into wine actually generated carbon bonds. It generated life. Same thing happened here. He's generating olive oil with carbon bonds that has life. He controls nature. Jesus walked on water. Jesus commanded a storm to stop, and it did. Jesus spoke to a fig tree, and it died. Jesus walked through a crowd undetected as they were actually trying to grab him and throw him off a cliff. But the greatest demonstration of his power over nature is he died and rose from the dead. Just two more. We have a, by the way, I had, I think, 13 at first, so be glad there's just seven. We have a God who's deeply compassionate. God cared about this insignificant widow. Wow. We don't even know her name. In Mark 6, there was a great crowd of people, and Jesus felt compassion for them. We know that when his friend Lazarus died, he wept. We have a compassionate Lord Jesus, who is the incarnation of this God in 2 Kings 4. And lastly, this is important for us. We have a God who will not let his name or his fame take second place to idols. That was then with Baal, and it's now with you and me and the things that we worship. What's worship? Things you will sin to enjoy or sin because you don't get to enjoy. Those are our idols, idols of the heart and idols that we worship in real life. He wants his name to be greater than all of those. You say, what does that have to do with Christmas? So often, there's an often waged debate about how do you preach Christ from the Old Testament? I don't think it's as complicated as we might think if we remember that Christ is the God of the Old Testament. I trust as the week progresses that you will remember that the God of this whole Bible is Jesus Christ. 